0: Father, we thank you for the banquet that is your word, and we pray now in these next moments that we would eat well, uh, that you would give us sustenance, and that we would digest Psalm 16 and what the Spirit is saying to the church uh, through Psalm 16, and that we would go forth from this place, Lord, to do good works Uh, to be faithful to you because you have been so faithful to us, Lord, faithful even when we are faithless. We praise you, we thank you for this time, and we ask your attendance in Jesus' name. Amen. Gloria, I figure it's the middle button that I press, correct? No, side button. Okay. Technology, I have to get used to it. And it's all because I forgot my notes to give to Oria, who usually does this. So, right on, it's working. So you'll notice in your Bible, we're just going to jump right in here, you'll notice in your Bible that there is a heading over Psalm 16. Are you at Psalm 16? I hope that you have a Bible open to Psalm 16. And there you'll notice a heading which reads, A Miktam of David. Simply put, we don't know what that word Miktam means. Uh, There have been several suggestions offered as to its meaning, but in the end, uh, the meaning of the word escapes us. In any case, however, if you read through Psalm 16, and it was read for us a little earlier, what can be determined is, is that this is a psalm that expresses confidence in God and confidence in God's goodness and in his protective hand. That's really what Psalm 16 is all about, confidence in God, Confidence in his goodness and protection. Now, where many Psalms give us specific details about specific dangers that David encountered as he wrote the Psalms, with kind of red lights flashing and sirens blaring, Psalm 16 is more of a yellow light psalm. In other words, we don't get a description here of any specific danger that David was facing. In fact, it's really only the initial verse of the psalm where David prays for preservation and prays for protection. If David was facing some specific trial or affliction that he needed protection from, we don't know what it was. It might be, In verse 1, that David is just simply praying for continued protection. He had experienced the protection of God, and now he's just asking for that to continue. David says in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Or we could also (laughs) render it, keep me, protect me, O God, for in you I find shelter. I find protection. And then David continues his confession of confidence in God in verse 2. When he says, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I confess to the Lord, in other words, You are my boss. I look to you. I take my cues from you. I trust in you. My faith is in you. I depend on you. And then David goes on to say, listen to what he says here, I have no good apart from you. Now, literally in the Hebrew original, it reads as follows, my good, not beyond you. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew, my good, not beyond you. The confession of David to his God here seems to be quite similar to what we have in Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Or Psalm 43, 4, where the psalmist calls God his exceeding joy. God, you are my exceeding joy. In New Testament terms, we might think of Philippians 3, 8, where the Apostle Paul talks of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Now I wonder, let's pause here, I wonder if we resonate with David's perception of God as his highest treasure. Psalm 16.2 is calling you and calling me to come and find our ultimate satisfaction and our ultimate joy in God. Which isn't to say that we stop altogether taking joy in the things of this world that are not God. But it is to say that even as we enjoy God's gifts of creation, health, monetary wealth, the brisket that I'm going to smoke on Monday. We must learn to see in and through those things more and more of God's glory. Are you with me this morning? It's God who ultimately satisfies, not his gifts per se, but God himself. Oh, that we would learn to sing with the hymn writer from the bottoms of our hearts. My Jesus is my treasure. He is my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Now, friends, it would be a good exercise if you don't feel right now, if you're honest with yourself and you don't feel that God is your highest, greatest treasure, it would be a good exercise to take this verse of the psalm and pray it back to God and confess to him that you are treasuring something or some things above him. And ask him to do a work by his Holy Spirit in your life so that you begin to truly treasure him as he deserves to be treasured. Let's go to verse 3. Watch this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. So we've gone from treasuring God in verse 2, now to treasuring the worshiping community in verse 3. When David uses this word saints here in verse 3 he's talking about in the context the covenant people of Israel the worshipping community in our parlance today we would say that David is talking about the church verse 3 is about finding satisfaction listens finding satisfaction in the people of god in the church As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And don't miss this, that verse 2, treasuring God, and verse 3, treasuring God's church, are right there next to one another. Did you notice that? Verse 2 is right next to verse 3. The idea in having these verses as immediate neighbors would seem to be, if you treasure God... You will treasure God's people. To prize God is to prize God's people. Remember that the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.4 talked glowingly, didn't he, about the people in the Colossian church having love for all the saints. Well, in his commentary on Psalm 16, Dale Ralph Davis is a realist. I love what he says. He notes that the saints in question, church folk, might not always act saintly. It's quiet in here. He says this. A quick read of the New Testament epistles supports that contention that saints don't always act saintly. And then he goes on to say this. I'm quoting him here at length because I think this is just so good. Davis says, it's true that the folks who sometimes infuriate, aggravate, and frustrate you the most are fellow believers. (laughs) He says, in fact, some churches seem to have self-appointed whiners who perpetually point out how hurtful and uncaring the particular fellowship is. But, says Davis, it's a bit like one's own children. They often have teeth missing, runny noses, and dead toads in their pockets. Yet you wouldn't trade them for anything because of who they are. So, with Psalm 16, says Davis, it will not let you off the hook. If Yahweh is your Lord... You will prize his people, otherwise there's something wrong. I like that. And so I take Psalm 16.3 as a spirit-given call, a spirit-given invitation to us to be long-suffering with one another, (laughs) amen, to be patient with one another, I take it as an encouragement for us to be seeking God and asking him to work in us fresh love for one another. So that we can say and we can mean with David, as for the local church, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Okay, so if verse 3 has David cozying himself up with a great deal of affection to the community of God, verse 4 now has David distancing himself, notice, he's distancing himself in verse four from the unbelieving communities. This is very interesting. Distancing himself from those who do not take Yahweh as their God. Notice what he says. He says The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, friends, we come to a verse here that probably is not going to rate high as a choice to be quoted in literature that would promote religious pluralism. It's not going to rate high because David talks here about those who would run after a God other than the God of the Bible as those who will have multiplied sorrows. And probably the sorrows would include everything from emotional adversities in life that you don't know what to do with to agony at the coming day of judgment. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply and for my part, says David, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood or take the names of these false gods on my lips. Loyalty to the God of the Bible, listen, means rejecting any participation in the worship of other false gods. Terribly unpopular thing to say in our culture, but it's true. In David's day, pouring out drink offerings of blood meant that you were signifying allegiance to a deity and also possibly asking that deity for deliverance as you poured out that blood. David would not do that. And then to take the names of these gods on your lips, in many cases, meant that you were coming close to a confession of allegiance to these gods. For example, to say the name Baal was to say a name that meant... Lord, and to say the name of the God Molech as another example was to say a word that meant king. David would not even say those names because the only Lord and king and sovereign for David was Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'll say it again, even though it is tremendously unpopular to say in our day, loyalty to the God of the Bible means rejecting any participation in the worship of other false gods. Let's go to verses 5 and 6, and I want to take these two verses together because what we need to notice here is that there's a great deal of imagery packed into these two verses that comes straight out of the time of Joshua and the conquest. We need to see this. In fact, I would argue that the Joshua stuff really begins in the verse that we just looked at, in verse 4, in the time of Joshua particularly in chapters 23 and 24 of the book of Joshua, we get all these warnings there to Israel to stay away from the gods of other nations, to stay loyal to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And, of course, that's reflected in verse 4 of our psalm. But in verses 5 and 6, we read this. Yahweh, the Lord, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice here several words in these two verses that are obvious allusions back to the Joshua story. For instance, we have that first word, portion. The Lord is my chosen portion. The word portion was used in the book of Joshua to talk about portions of land or portioning out land in places like Joshua 14.4 and 14.5, 15.13, etc. Portion. And then here in Psalm 16.5, we also have the word lot, or as it's sometimes translated, allotment. The Lord holds David's lot or allotment. Same word is found. In Joshua 15:1 and Joshua 16:1 and 17:1 etc where the word refers to the allotment of land given to the tribes during the conquest. And then in Psalm 16:6 6, notice we also have that word lines. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What does this mean? Well, the reference here with this word lines is to measuring lines that were used to portion out the land during Joshua's time to the tribes of Israel. The same word is found in Joshua 17.5, 17.14, etc. Last, in Psalm 16.6, notice that word inheritance. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, the land divided to each family in each tribe during the conquest was that family's inheritance. Same word for inheritance that we find in Joshua eleven twenty three, thirteen thirty three, 13.33, etc. So what's the upshot of all this? The upshot is that the psalmist here, David, in verses 5 and 6 of the psalm, clearly wants us as readers to think of the land portioned out to Israel given to Israel as their inheritance in the time of Joshua. But note very carefully, friends, this is important, that the psalmist, David, changes the tune here. He changes the reference point of what the allotment, lines, and inheritance is. David's portion here is not a piece of land, as it was in the time of Joshua. Now David's portion, notice very carefully, is the Lord himself. Amen. His portion is the Lord. The Lord is my portion and my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We need to understand here, and I hope we resonate in the depths of our bones, that David has no good beyond God. David's very life is wrapped up in God. God is not a hobby for David. David takes Yahweh as his portion, as his food and drink and sustenance, as the one who refreshes and satisfies and gives everything necessary for life. David is like the Levites who were given no portion of the land, during the time of the conquest, the Levites, rather, were to take God himself as their portion. To Aaron, the Levite, God had said in Numbers 18.20, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy 10.9 says this, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. David, in Psalm 16.5 and 6, sounds like a Levitical priest who took God As his portion. And if David was on the run from Saul when he wrote Psalm 16, we're not sure, but if he was on the run, lacking any permanent land in which to settle down at that time in his life, this would make even more sense here. The Lord was his portion, even if he lacked a place to lay his head in the land. Note also in verse 5 how David calls God his cup. Do we pray this way? Lord, you are my cup. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What does this mean? I'm helped here a great deal by the commentator Alan Ross who says this. In the Bible, the cup was a symbol of one's destiny. It represented one's portion in life, what one was given to drink, as it were. It's like we say, Wow, this is the hand I've been dealt, right? That's the cup. It's one's destiny, what you're given to drink in life. He says, for the wicked, it refers to judgment, a cup of staggering, a cup of fire and brimstone. But for the righteous, the cup is a cup of blessing. Ross says, Psalm 16 is declaring that the believer's lot in life is good. It is the Lord. Let's go on to verse 7. Now notice here, David now breaks out into some explicit worship. He should have been there with us last night. He says this, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. (laughs) Amen. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now the counsel... Given by Yahweh here that David is praising God for is counsel that we find in the written word of God in the Bible. In fact, in Psalm 119.24, the written testimonies of God are called counselors. Interestingly enough, you and I have divine counsel in our Bibles. Did you know that? Last week in Psalm 1, we were beckoned there in Psalm 1 to turn away from the counsel of the wicked. Now here in Psalm 16, David is praising God and blessing God for the counsel he finds in the written word of God. Again, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. Now there seems to be a connection. Notice this with me. A connection between the first half of the verse that talks about God giving counsel And the second half of the verse where David talks about his heart instructing him in the night. Dale Ralph Davis again says that verse 7 does indeed depict for us a sort of process. He says this, Yahweh gives counsel through his word and the believer takes that word and ponders it and chews on it even or especially during the night and finds that it becomes instruction and warning for him or her. I don't know about you, but increasingly, I want to be the person described in verse 7. How often have I fallen asleep not having God's word on my mind? I want to change that, and I hope you're a person who wants to come with me on that journey. May God do a fresh work among us to make us a people of his word, who fall asleep, chewing on the word, pondering his counsel, instead of falling asleep, like I often do, worried about the cares of the following day. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Wow. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, really, verse 8 might be taken as a sort of banner that flies over the entire psalm. You can argue that verse 8 really summarizes uh, what Psalm 16 is, is talking about. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken to set God always before you is constantly to look to God, to think of God in your everyday. Think about his purposes, seek his power and his assistance, ask the encouragement of God during your day, to be ever mindful of the Lord, says Alan Ross, giving priority to him in all our thoughts and actions. So this is no call to a sort of tepid, lukewarm, milk toast Christianity. I have set the Lord. Always before me. How many distractions do we have in our culture? You know that. I have set the Lord always before me. What we see here is is that God and a sense of God permeated David's life. And David had a lot of cares. A lot of afflictions. A lot of trials. But a sense of God permeated his life. And he says, Because... God is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now in scripture, the right hand hand is normally the place of strength and the place of honor. I'm quoting Alan Ross a lot today, but he's so helpful. He says this, warriors would carry their shields on their left arms and fight with their right hand. This also left them vulnerable to attack on the unprotected side. But David has protection there. He knows that if the Lord is on his right side, then the Lord is his strength and his shield. No adversary can harm him. Awesome. Which leads, I think, quite naturally into verse 9. Therefore, says David. What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, with God at my right hand, he's just said that, my heart is glad This is what happens when God is at your right hand. And my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Yes! With Almighty God protecting and defending us, our whole self, our whole being, our whole flesh will be glad and will rest secure and will rejoice. It's the promise here. Verse 10. Now, notice in the psalm so far, hope you've been tracking, David has been singing God's praises. Why? Because God is his refuge and his protector and his good and his portion and his compass in life. But what about in his death? What about in our own deaths? We don't like to talk about our dying very much in our day, do we? Notice David's almost strange confidence here about his dying in God. David says to God in verse 10 You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see. Now, there are several things about verse 10 that need to be said. First of all, just bear in mind that David wrote verse 10 hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. That is, unlike us who have the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament, David in his day could not have had a thoroughgoing Complete theology of resurrection and afterlife all worked out. Could not have had that. But even still, David expresses confidence here, doesn't he? Confidence that God would not simply abandon him when David lay down in the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. Sheol was the place where human activity ceased, where human speaking and laughing and working and praising God did not take place. The place of the dead. David has a strong inkling here, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, that God would not simply abandon him to this place, to Sheol. Otherwise, why in the world would God sustain David in life, provide for him in life, guide him in life, only then to let go and abandon David when he died? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see Corruption. That word corruption at the end of verse 10 refers to the decay that the human body experiences when it's laid in the grave. Isn't the Bible honest about what happens to us when we die? David had an inkling, however fuzzy it may have been, that David would not see or experience the bodily decay that happens to us when we, are, when we die and we are laid in the grave and buried in the ground. You, O oh God, will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, we rightly ask here, how could David say such a thing? And believe such a thing? What made David special... That he thought to himself, not only will God not abandon me to Sheol, God will not let me experience the bodily decay and corruption after I die and am buried. How can he say that? I promise that we'll come right back to that question momentarily. I'm going to leave you hanging on it. But for now, let's go to the last verse of the psalm to verse 11. David having this confidence in life of God's care, and David having confidence of God's care even in death. Now he concludes the psalm by saying this, and we love this verse. You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, notice we've gone from David's right hand now to God's right hand in the psalm. At your right hand are pleasures forever more. It's almost like David is saying after the talk of death in verse 10 that the path to true life is through the path of death. And true life looks like what verse 11 describes, fullness of joy (laughs) in the literal presence of God. Pleasures forevermore eternally at the right hand of God. This almost sounds like a description of the afterlife of life after the grave. All right, so having journeyed through all 11 verses of the psalm, let's tie the loose strands together as we work toward a conclusion. Let's work toward answering the question that we had about verse 10, which again was this question, how can David be confident that he would not be abandoned in death and confident also that his body would not decay in the grave? Come with me back to verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now for a moment, let's take these words out of David's mouth and put them into the mouth of David's greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater David. In one of Isaiah's prophecies about the coming of the servant king in the lineage of David, God promised that he would keep or preserve the servant king, Jesus, and give him as a covenant to the people. That's Isaiah 49.8. Hebrews 5.7 tells us that when the servant king, Jesus, walked the earth, he prayed prayers not unlike Psalm 16.1. It says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him, to preserve him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus knew the father as his preserver. And with Psalm 16.5, Jesus knew the Father as his chosen portion and his cup. Jesus had no land, nowhere to lay his head, but his food, John 4.34, his food, his portion was to do the will of the Father. And the cup that Jesus willingly drank was the cup that the Father Gave him. It was the cup that he wrestled over in Gethsemane, but ended up drinking down to the dregs. And Jesus is the only one who has fully lived out Psalm 16:8. I have set the Lord always before me. As John Gill wrote so beautifully in yesteryear, he said this: The Father is the object which Christ set before him and looked unto in the whole course of his life on earth. He had always an eye to the Father's glory as the ultimate end in all his actions, and to do his will, his orders, and commands as the rule of them, and to his purposes and counsel and covenant to accomplish them, and to his power, truth, and faithfulness to assist, support, and encourage him in all his difficulties and most distressed circumstances. Jesus fulfills Psalm 16.8. And Jesus, the greater David, the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of David's lineage, Jesus is the only one to whom Psalm 16.10 ultimately refers our question with verse 10 was, how can David be confident that he would not be abandoned in death? How could he be confident that his body would not decay in the grave? And the answer to the question begins this way, with the assertion that David was a prophet. 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 and 2 tell us that David spoke oracles like prophets did. And Acts 2.30 Confirms explicitly that David was a prophet. As a prophet, David in Psalm 1610 is not ultimately talking about his own self escaping bodily corruption. He's looking forward in time to a descendant of his, to the Holy One who would come after David in David's line. And I think part of the evidence for the fact that David is talking prophetically in Psalm 1610 about a later descendant of his is found in this fact, that suddenly in Psalm 1610, there is a noteworthy, abrupt change of personal pronouns. Watch this. All through Psalm 16, we have David using the word my. My portion, verse 5. My cup, verse 5. My lot, verse 5, my heart, verse 7, my right hand, verse 8, my heart, verse 9, my whole being and my flesh, verse 9, my soul, verse 10, and then suddenly in the latter half of verse 10, we get not my, but your holy one. It's almost as, as if David has been talking throughout the psalm about himself and the benefits that God gave him, suddenly, midway through verse 10, there's this purposeful change to your holy one. Could it be, friends, that David consciously changes the pronoun now because he's not talking about himself, but prophetically he's talking about another one in his lineage who would come later, who would be called holy one. Your Holy One, God's Holy One, who was to come, the greater Son of David, the Messiah Jesus, whose body would not see corruption or decay. It's Jesus, whose physical body does not see corruption because the body of Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day to life everlasting. And of course... All of this is made crystal clear in the book of Acts, in the sermons of both Peter and Paul. If you doubt what I've said, let's just go to Peter and Paul here. Acts 2, verses 29 through 31. Peter says, and here he's talking about Psalm 16. He says as he preaches, oh, the patriarch David? Yeah, he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Yes, Peter's saying, we're now hundreds of years after David died and was buried. And if you want to, you can go and visit the tomb where David's body decayed physically and it's resting there. In other words, says Peter in Acts 2.29, Psalm 16.10, that little bit about David's body not seeing decay, that can't be about David because David is here in the land and is buried and has been buried for hundreds of years to be sure david's body broke down and decayed after burial acts 230 peter continues being therefore a prophet he's talking about david being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would not that he would set one of his descendants on his throne David foresaw, that's what prophets do. David foresaw and spoke in Psalm 16:10 he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, which is the New Testament equivalent to Sheol. Nor did his flesh see corruption. There it is. This Jesus, God, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter makes it clear there that Jesus fulfills Psalm 16.10, and the Apostle Paul also affirms the exact same thing, we won't go to it, but in his sermon in Acts 13, specifically verses 34 to 37. The apostles were witnesses to this historical fact that Jesus died, but God did not abandon his soul to Sheol. God did not let the body of Jesus, the son of David, see corruption. God raised Jesus on the third day, and Jesus became in that moment what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, and now this applies to us, the first firstfruits. Blessed be God. The first fruits, Jesus, resurrected Jesus, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. Friend, if you die trusting the crucified, risen, exalted, and soon coming Jesus Christ, you too will be raised. Do you believe it? Raised in the wider harvest of resurrection that is yet to come. It's going to happen. If you die clinging to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God will not abandon your soul to Hades. The decay and the corruption of your body will not be The last word. You will be raised one day to have your soul reunited with a glorified body. Your glorified body is going to wake up in that grave and it's going to crack through the roots and the mud up to the surface. And you will have an everlasting body and you will live physically. You like physical pleasures? I do. I'm looking forward to breathing some smoke in from the oak and the cherry wood on Monday when I smoke that brisket. That's a foretaste, a little appetizer of the magnitude of what is coming in the new creation. You will live physically in a glorified body with Jesus. Eternally. Eternally. And you will find that Psalm 1611 is going to be an unimaginable reality. Not just joy, not just some joy, great joy, but fullness of joy. We can't imagine. Fullness of joy in the literal eternal presence of God. Eternal pleasures at his right hand. I mean, think about it. A billion years will pass and you'll still be gasping when God gives you new pleasures. And a billion years later, it's still continuing. Pleasures at his right hand for billions, trillions, quadrillions of years. First Thess- Thessalonians 4.14 puts the whole matter very plainly. It says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is a wider harvest of resurrection that will one day come. The cemeteries here in Montreal are places of resurrection to life one day for all who have died believing, including our sister Ronnie, who we laid in the earth yesterday. And so ask yourself, and then I'm done. Ask yourself as you sit here this day, and ask yourself very soberly and very seriously, do I believe with all my heart that what Jesus said in John 11.25 is really true? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he or she die, yet shall he or she live. Do I believe really that God will not abandon my soul to Sheol? Do I have assurance in my bones that he will not leave my body forever to physically decay and see corruption? Do I believe that after I die and am one day raised, that the pleasures I will experience in my glorified body at his right hand are unimaginably staggering, that they will last eternally? And am I oriented toward that goal in my life right now? So that I can say with David in Psalm 16:9, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure because of God.